everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is John Purcell, who I'll refer to as Percy throughout the conversation as he would prefer. As Lahiris explained during the episode, Percy and I went back and forth a few times about which show to discuss. As the host, I really tried to do my best to stay out of that decision-making process since the story and the attendance bias itself belongs to the guest. In this case, Percy and I had a little trouble settling on one show, and so he came up with a really good idea. He wanted to talk about how different fish shows throughout his life reflected different points of his life experience. So we ended up picking three different shows many years apart, and we would review highlights from each one. The three shows that Percy chose for today's episode are New Year's Eve 1994 at Boston Garden, The Great Wentz, specifically August 17th, 1997 at Loring Air Force Base, and then we'll close out with December 28th, 2019 at Madison Square Garden. Due to the back-and-forth decision-making process, plus a possible typo here and there, you may hear me mistake the date of the Madison Square Garden show during our conversation, but officially, it is December 28th, 2019. So let's join Percy to hear about what actually happened with the hot dog on New Year's 94, the incredible Harry Hood from The Great Went, and how fish can be there for you through good times and bad over the course of 25 years. Let's meet today's guest. John Purcell, thanks for being on Attendance Bias. How are you on this very sticky hot day? I'm I'm all right. I'm actually up in the North Country where it's raining and it's much cooler, but still sticky. I had a debate with myself this morning about whether to get a hot coffee or a cold coffee. One of those days where both would work. Yeah, I had a, a hot coffee this morning and then I treated myself to a smoothie a little bit later. It's just one of those <laughs> days. I'm in New York City and it is very hot and gross and I'll do a little rain dance after our conversation uh-huh. is over to hopefully cool it off. Uh, but you're here today on a kind of unique format for attendance bias. And I'm happy that you brought this idea up to me because normally the format is very straightforward. Someone has a great story or an experience they want to talk about focused around one jam or one show that Fish has played. And you messaged me a bit of a while ago with kind of an unsure take on how you wanted to tell your story. But long story short, and we'll get to the long story, but long story short, we're going to touch on three different shows that kind of helped guide your fish experience. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. Sure. All right. So we'll get to those three shows. They're going to be New Year's Eve, 1994 at the Boston Garden. And then we'll flash forward a couple of years later to the Great Went. And then we'll close up with a somewhat recent show, December 29th, 2018 at Madison Square Garden. Before we get to any of those, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, You grew up in the Boston area. Yep. Um, I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I attended a summer camp in Vermont for many years where I'm actually still working to this day. I sort of became conscious of fish. Uh, I'd see it around me. I I remember seeing it on the marquee at the the Somerville Theater when I was, uh, I guess I must have been 12 years old um, driving by. I'm not sure what year they played there. And then one day my dad brought home Picture of Nectar which is kind of weird that my dad introduced me to fish, uh, but he's, he's always been uh, a musical, you know, helped me find my musical influences. We had Beatles records and things when I was a kid. Well, how um, old were you when your dad brought home a picture of nectar? Well, it was, it was the year it came out, I think. So, it was and so that's 92. Yeah. Yeah. 92. And I, I played it. 
a lot more than he did. Um, he loved tweezer and does to this day. Whenever I hear an, a new tweezer that I've never heard before, I send it to my dad because I know he's going <laughs> to like him. He's he's 80, but <laughs> he digs it. So was he into fish? Maybe I should interview him. How did he come across <laughs> that album? Well, a friend of his at work knew that he was, he had a very um, eclectic taste. Uh, he was into, you know, in the sixties, he was into folk and he and my mom have a story about going to see Joan Baez and Dylan at club Passim in Harvard square. So it was like pre electric Dylan, real folk, folky stuff. And then he's always been into kind of, grungy blues like rye cooter and um he loves new orleans piano and so a friend of his thought well he's good he might like this because it's kind of eclectic and funky and he didn't like it as much as i did i yeah. could see that connection though i could see something like megillah which is on a picture of nectar connecting to someone who might like professor Longhair yeah. or dr john or something like that yeah i think i mean i think what with tweezer appealed to him because it was like that kind of spare funk that you know where it's like really rhythm driven he liked how how like dirty it sounded <laughs> yeah for um, sure and, and so uh, what what were you into though before you got into fish before your dad brought home a picture of nectar what was music to you i mean i loved pink floyd i loved led zeppelin i kind of went through you know the renaissance that every <laughs> teenage guy fish fan goes through which is like you know exploring classic rock and then uh, it was the, you know, it was the early 90s. So grunge was big. And so I, my first concert was Primus. That's and fun. When was that? It was awesome. 93. Yeah, it was great. The, and the, where the was that? Band was, it was at the Orpheum in Boston. And mm -hmm. the opening band was the Melvins. And they got booed off stage. Wow. And uh, because Primus fans were just like. I was going to say, they're worse <laughs> than Fish fans. Yeah, I know. They were, they were, they were mean. They were mean to the Melvins. Was that around the time that Pork Soda <laughs> came out? Yeah, it was real. I was after Pork Soda, definitely. And they were wild. And then um, I saw the Pink Floyd uh, Division Bell show and I saw the Page Plant uh, thing and, and Dylan. And then I was at the Boston Garden in uh, 94 and I was seeing Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson was opening and it was just, amazing i mean nine inch nails was incredible live but i didn't really feel like i was in the right place i i felt like it was um just a totally different scene than i was used to and um i didn't sort of connect with the music and i didn't connect with the fan base either there was not really a lot of um variety there um for me i i overheard a couple of security guards um saying to one another how excited they were that fish was coming for new year's because they were, they were nice and their fans were nice and it was just a cool scene. So I overheard that and decided I would take my friend up on his invitation to have me come to the new year's show. I immediately went out and I bought Junta on cassette and that just blew my mind. I had never heard music like that before. Which is interesting because you heard a picture of Nectar first, but it was Junta that blew you away. I think I just connected more to the the, the melodic proggy nature of of Junta because it was um, I don't know it was it was so unique to to anything I'd ever heard. Where I mean, picture of Nectar is unique too. Obviously, the yeah. lyrics the lyrics are crazy and the the sort of island rhythm combined with you know funk and 
I mean, that was cool too. Emotionally, I think I felt more of a connection to to Junta because uh, of the melodies um, and because of the sort of like serpentine nature of of each song, those sort of fugue songs of which I don't believe Picture of Nectar really has one, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the Ash Festival in the middle of... (laughs) Guela Papyrus. Yeah. I mean, that could be considered uh, a, a few, but I get, you know, I hear what you're saying that Junta is a double album and it only has something, what, like 12 tracks? Yeah, that's right. I, I don't, I think the cassette version was different in that Union Federal isn't on there. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure Sanity and Iculus are, but maybe I'm wrong. We'll have to ask Zizix. He's yeah. the type <laughs> of person exactly who would know this. We'd have yeah. to go right to him. Your first show was New Year's 94. What do you remember about it? Oh, God. I looked at the set list. I could have sworn they opened with Golgi, but they did not. They opened with, <laughs> like, was it Take the A Train or something? Or, like, um, Anyways, Golgi was the first song that I sort of remember seeing. And be, it was the perfect thing to open with because I knew it. And I felt connected instantly. This is something I knew. And uh Boston Garden was, this was the old Boston Garden, which was, mm-hmm. you know, very soon um, to be torn down to make way for for the new one, the Fleet Center. The sound was really like, tin. it was like being in a tin can and seeing a show in a tin can that was painted bright yellow. Mm-hmm. And, I remember, um, <laughs> I, I've only been there once. I remember going to a, uh, to a Bruins game when yeah. I was probably like nine or 10 years old. That was, I was only inside once. And it was filled with smoke, of course. I was up in... Uh, I don't know, like one of those like little loge box sections, like high up, you know, then they played, they also played Divided Sky, which I was I freaked out about because that's the song I came to see. And a, a more experienced friend had told me I was unlikely to see all the songs I wanted to see. <laughs> so it's I still was still pre- true. Pre- yeah, right. Even more so now. It's like, yeah. you know, I was prepared for that. Um, so really excited to see that. And curious about the guys on stage, you know, like looking at Trey and thinking that he looked like a golden retriever. And it was like, <laughs> it was like back in the day when he was just like bopping the whole time, like going everyone at home right now, right now, do a Google image search for fish <laughs> new year's 94 and see if you can find Trey and do a quick side by side with a golden retriever. I know exactly what you mean though. <laughs> it's just That's ridiculous. Great. You know, I didn't know their names or who was who. And, and, um, it was exciting to me. I, I sort of immediately started thinking to myself, I'm going to get into this. Like this, this is fun. And then at new year's, they flew a hot dog across Boston garden. And like I was theirs. For now, let's talk about what listeners can expect. So, you know, the typical format of attendance bias of people coming on with either a story or an experience or just kind of, stuff to talk about regarding a specific show or a specific jam. But when you got in touch with me a couple of months ago, you came at me with a different idea. What was your thought about coming on to attendance bias? Well, I think part it, it came out of having attended shows over different eras and then taking a big break. But my idea was when you go to it, when I go to a fish show, you know, every time I say this, I'm speaking personally, like when I go, it's sort of, I remember it in the context of where I was in my life at that time. So in 94, when I went, I remember it in the context of being in high school and being really happy and having a lot of friends. 
in 97. I remember being in college, all this stuff. So it's, it's about, it's about uh, uh, shows being a way to mark the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like putting a bookmark in certain places in your life because a fish show is so impactful. I haven't been to that many. I've, I haven't even cracked 40. I'm at 38 right now, but I've been an obsessive fan <laughs> since 94. So maybe that helps me to, to have these shows really mark the time. And uh, musically, they hit you based on where you are in life. I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people kind of use their memory between some sort of constant in their life. Like what book was I reading at the time or what grade was I in? You know, if you go back far enough, stuff like that. But I agree with you. I kind of do the same thing when I think of a year and that's kind of how I keep it like bookmarks too. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's, it's just another, another like way to go back and look at your life and you can remember those times from those those like fantastic shows that you saw. When was this show played? So the first fantastic show that we'll talk about is the one we've been mostly discussing is new year's 94. What made this show so important to you aside from it being your first? I mean, I think, I I think that's (laughs) obvious. The obvious reason that I picked it, it's because it's the beginning that was sort of like the least, the time in my life when I had the least amount of worry. Um, I was completely healthy mentally. I was successful as an actor in high school. And um, I mean, at my high school um, mm-hmm. and I really found something that I thought would be my thing. I was, you know, I was going to be an actor and I was happy. I had a lot of friends, girls were interested in me. I was just like, I was riding high. And so the first time I saw fish, I, uh, I sort of glommed onto them in this state. Like they represented their exuberance and their kind of like playfulness totally spoke to me because that's the way I was personality wise. I was always kind of a clown. I was, you know, I wanted to make people laugh and I loved that surrealist stuff, you know, the, the hot dog and, the hot dog's the perfect representation of that. It's like, what other band would do that? Nine Inch Nails wouldn't do that. Of course not. They would never be able to see the hot dog with all the strobe lights. I know, I know. Their personality was the personality that I felt sort of was also mine. And Um, so what what happened in between New Year's 94 and The Great Went, which was in August of 97? Well, I graduated from high school in 96 and I went to college in Southern California. I have had a lifelong um, battle with ADHD and it wasn't really diagnosed until just a few years ago. I was never a good student. And I also had like the desire all the time to just hang out with my friends. So those two things combined to sort of lead to a crash in college. Um, I didn't have my parents to tell me to do my homework and tell me like, it's, you know, midnight, you should turn your light off. I was on my own and I wasted two years of tuition at school. And far from home. If you were in Southern California from Massachusetts. Far from home. And I did see fish when I was on the West coast. I saw the Las Vegas, their first Vegas show, which was amazing. It was so weird. And then I saw the, the one the next year at those shows. I think about exactly what was going on at school at that time. Exactly. You know, who my friends 
to pick a moment in time and and remember all that stuff. I don't, I think if I hadn't been to those shows that those years would be much more of a blur. (laughs) So if 94, you were riding really high and then 97, you were, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to me to say a crash, but definitely at a lower point, it sounds like. Yeah. About um, my last, my last show of the nineties was um, New Year's 97, 98. And then I went, uh, I went back to school and had my first panic attack and dropped out because I was sort of melting down and having a real emotional like collapse. And that led over the next number of years to my first encounters with opiates. And I, I hadn't used them, but I, w- I got married and I moved to Chicago in the early 2000s and was very depressed and started self-medicating with, with, sleeping medication and anti-anxiety medication and painkillers got a divorce and my life kind of fell apart from there, you know, between the years of 2004 and 2017, uh, I was struggling mightily with substance use disorder in various forms in and out of rehab DUIs and they felt very far from home and very far from fish. So So 97 was right before, and correct me if I'm wrong, just want to make sure I'm following you on the timeline. So 94 was when you were riding high, feeling like you were in the full flower of your gifts. 97 was maybe the last hurrah before things started going sour for you. And maybe you lost a little bit of control of with yourself and your, your ability to kind of hold a lot together. And then the last show that we're going to discuss today in just a little bit is December 29th, 2018. So what was what did that cap? What is it that that kind of became a culmination? Oh well, uh, you mean that you mean the 2018 show? Yes, yes, the 2018 show. Between 97 and 2018, I fell into my a substance use disorder and came back from that. Oddly enough, between 97 and 2018, Fish also did that. Yeah, um, they they broke up. Trey had all of his struggles, and as I was as he was getting better, I was getting worse. And um, finally was able to, to find sobriety. And um, I was living in Southern California in 2017 and I had hurt my back and my foot didn't work. And I was, I was just trying to get out of this cycle of, of use and was able to do it um, step by step slowly and brought myself back. So I'm April 1st of this last year, I had four years um, sober and um, so I'm in my fifth year of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. I feel like I've been, it, it sounds crazy, but I feel like I've been born again. You know, like I've, I, I'm through, I'm four and a half years old right now. Yeah. I don't think that of- sounds crazy. I think there's a lot <laughs> of people out there who would hear that and understand completely that metaphor of feeling born yeah. again. Yeah. I feel new and fish is new right now. I mean, they're, they're still new. They're, this whole 3.0, 3.0 is my favorite time uh, to see fish because I feel like they are, they are exploring their rebirth as a band and the performances are so positive. Like there's so much positivity. There were times in the nineties when I felt like we were all just being totally fucked with. And I know that was happening. And, you know, some of those like 50 minute tweezers from, from the mid nineties where it just, like the music got so dissonant and, and 
it almost felt like, like we were being screwed with. Um, <laughs> and I don't get that feeling now ever, even when they do go dark. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the, the um, Hampton golden age and how, I, I mean, I was there for that. I remember sort of when the rhythm broke, like, petered out and I was like, I don't know how to dance to this just for like, <laughs> for like two minutes. I didn't know how to dance. <laughs> and then it came back and I was like, okay, so they took us to that place, but then didn't let us linger there that long. Well, that's what happened in 2009. There's a show in Hartford. Uh, I think the date is August 14th, where it was like the birth of Plinko when Trey did this weird effect with his pedal. And he started saying that this is like Pong. It's like the yeah. music for the Pong video game. And then he said, we're going to have a dance contest for anyone who could dance to this music. <laughs> and then I think Fishman, you know, as a joke, he got up and started dancing. And it's similar to what you were describing in those weird dissonant 95 jams, except now they acknowledge the joke. Yeah, they acknowledge the joke. And also, like, I've heard Trey say a number of times, you know, I'm playing what I'm experiencing in the room, who I'm seeing. I watch somebody dancing and I'm playing in response to their dancing. These shows are such conversations between the band and the audience. I really like to think about it that way. We're The energy that the, the crowd is putting out is the energy that the band is putting out. And we're kind of talking to each other almost. And it really feels like communication is great right now. So let's dig into the first show New Year's Eve 94. So for everyone at home, the way that Percy and I decided to do this was he gave those three shows, New Year's 94, The Great Went, and then December 29th, 2018. And we just picked a couple of highlights to dig into. So the first one you picked was Divided Sky. And this was played toward the very end of set one on New Year's Eve 1994. I thought that this is definitely one of the songs of 1994 because there's so many great versions of it from that year. And this recording from fish.in is outstanding. You can especially hear Mike. He's very heavy in the mix. And when these days, myself included, when people say that fish doesn't sound like they used to, this is the sort of, or I had the feeling that this is sort of what they mean that fish used to sound like. Why did you pick uh, divided sky from this show? Well, I think it's for, it's, you know, what you said just now about, you know, how, what they used to sound like. Um, it was that's that melding of all the instruments all at once um, that turned, it was like, like four elements coming together to create a new compound. And I think Divided Sky and at, you know, that, that song is really representational of that because you can't play that song without every instrument, I feel. Um, <laughs> that's, I agree. <laughs> right. So it was remarkable to hear it live. And I, the bass, I remember feeling the bass uh, for the first time during that jam and listening back to it. Uh, it's, it sounds the, the jam section sounds awfully familiar. It's unbelievable. I was listening to it and writing down some notes. I wrote that at nine minutes and 30 seconds that they're rounding third base. I'm like, all right, they're almost done with this, yeah. but there's still six minutes left in the track. That's more yeah. than most pop songs. Right. And, and, and they don't fully capitalize on it, but it's um, for a noob at their first show at the age of 15 or 16 or whatever I was, it was, it was transcendent. It's incredible 
for me to hear you say that it, they don't capitalize it, uh, capitalize on it. I thought that that last six minutes with the jam, I thought that like Trey was machine gun Trey kind of took out. They're playing so fast. Uh, he took the lead at about 12 and a half minutes. And yeah. at 14 minutes, Fishman plays a drum fill that's faster than lightning. He And it, <laughs> and it came to a really powerful ending. I thought they capitalized on it big time. I love to hear you say they didn't because I couldn't I think I don't I don't it. think I don't think I'm referring quite to the ending. I think okay. I think there's a middle section there's a middle section where they're trying to find their feet. I totally agree with you about the fill. I, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Fishman is incredible. Yeah, he's the greatest. I think we're right. probably talking about the same part there. Yeah, I think so. And I then after so. Divided Sky, the next highlight that you selected was the New Year's Eve gag where they played Auld Lang Syne into well, they didn't really play it, but there was a recording of Tropical Hot Dog Night by Captain Beefheart. And then they started the new year with Chalk Dust Torture. Right. Yeah, I can't I can never remember what they played in the hot dog. Um, <laughs> I think I it's all Lang Syne. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. For a long time, I sort of like had a false memory that it was Meat Stick. But of course, Meat Stick wasn't a song then. And like. Um, well, that was at was Big it? Cypress. When did Meat Big... When did Meat Stick debut? Do you Do you know that? Yeah, Meat Stick debuted. I don't know the actual date, but it's in the Europe '97 tour. <laughs> right. But they did what. play it while they were in the hot dog uh, at Big at Big Cypress. Right. When they were, yeah. it, it was dressed up to look like an airboat, and then the sides blew off of it, and they were playing Meat Stick right at midnight. <laughs> I, yeah, I think maybe having heard about that, I sort of thought that was my memory too. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you do that, it was just so weird. And, and the, the, the fries, there were some fries on stage too. Um, like a big thing of fries. And then they got in the hot dog and the, the chalk dust after that is just insane. Yeah. Like, it is. I love that. That's the highlight of the night. I think. 
Yeah, for a minute, I thought that this is the version from a live one. It isn't. That one right. was about a month and a half earlier. Um, I have it written down here as November 16th, 94 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But I, it should be noted that the bouncing around the room on a live one is from this show. But anyway, this I didn't is, know that. Yeah, oh my God. that's awesome. Yeah. So the, my understanding of this whole New Year's gag is during set break, you could hear it. It's on the recording that over the PA Fishman and Trey are having a conversation where Fishman says, oh, man, the show is going to be so much longer. They have so much more music to play. He needs something to eat. He needs a snack. And I don't know the words he uses, but he insults like vegetarian food. He's like, you know, not one of those garbage fake hot dogs. I want a real big hot dog. And then Trey's like, oh, we'll send someone out to get you one of those big jumbo hot dogs and fries and a Coke. Okay, Fish, we got uh, five minutes till we have to be back on stage. Is everybody ready to go? Mike, you ready to go? I'm ready pretty much. Fish, you ready, ready, Fish? I don't know, man. We gotta be on stage fast. I don't think there's really time to get anything. They're ready for us out there. Let's talk about these star-shaped things. Oh, man, I'm sick of those vegetarian styrofoamy things that dry my mouth. I need something juicy, something that lasts. Well, maybe I could get. Uh, we could. Uh, we really gotta go on stage, and we could ask Brad to uh, order something from the concession stand and bring it to you on stage in between songs. What do you say to that? Oh yeah, that, that would be fine. That would be fine. Okay, what should I tell him? What do you want? Well, I, a hot dog. Give me a hot dog. Give me one of those jumbo dogs with a Coke and some fries. Okay, so you want me to tell Brad that you want the big jumbo hot dog, a large Coke, and a large fries delivered to you on the stage. That is exactly what I want. Okay, I'll tell him. You guys ready to go? Let's go out on stage. And then that's the joke that they came in on the hot dog. Amazing. I yeah. I I have very. I mean, I listened back to it, but um, I I just remembered little snippets of that and looking around at my friends who I think the, the people I was sitting with were in, we were in this big group and everyone was sitting all over the place. I had friends on the floor, I had friends next to me and we were all rookies and we just looked at each other like, what was happening? And then there were these ping pong balls they threw out of the dog as they, mm-hmm. they there were the little fish ping pong balls. And, but I also, um, I was reading about, or maybe it was from an interview about sort of the original idea. I think Trey said it, maybe in the movie that they made. Um, but it was about the original idea for the, the the hot dog came out of this idea that they were trying to get to the person who was furthest from the band. Like look out over the audience and see the person in the back, back row. And wouldn't that be crazy for them if suddenly they were, they had the best seat in the house. Yeah. I think that's in the fish book. <laughs> right. Where the, yeah. Where, where they said, you said it. It's like, how do we get the person with the worst, worst seat in the venue to all of a sudden have the best seat in the venue? Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's such a, like such a generous motivation. And the last highlight that you picked from this show is simple, which is the first song of the encore before they closed out with another kind of reprise of Auld Lang Syne. And simple was fairly new at the time. There are impeccable vocal harmonies, especially for 94, when that wasn't exactly their 
biggest strength. And there was a very sweet tease and segue into Odd Lang Syne toward the end, which closed the whole show down. Is that why you picked Simple? Because it was the last one of the show? Um, I, yes. And I, I mean, I think because it was in that slot, I had the melody in my head all the way home. So Simple was a song, I, of course, I'd never heard before and stuck with me, including Skyballs and sack scrapers, which I think <laughs> were different words at the time for me. I'm like, what were they saying? It was so weird. Like I had it all in my head when I left. And so I got to hear these songs I knew, but I also got, I got this idea that there was so much territory ahead. Yeah. And that I had so much to learn and, and wasn't that exciting. So fast forward to the great went this one is, or this set of songs is from August 17th, 97. At this point, you kind of said it, that it was right before you kind of lost control of parts of your life. And the songs that you chose to go over were Harry Hood, as I go past like seven pages of notes of <laughs> Harry Hood, and, and Gaiute, just the two of them. And of all the tracks that you chose to listen to and review for this episode, Harry Hood was easily the one that I listened to the most. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I know. I know. It is unbelievable. And being there was key. I mean, it's unbelievable to listen to just on its own, but they turned the lights off and we looked at the stars and listened to Hood. And that was the advent of the glow stick war. And it was like this just spiritual moment. Yeah, at six minutes, Trey says, Chris, talking to Chris Garota, if you want to kill the lights, we can just look at the moon and the sculpture. So, uh, Chris, if you want to kill the lights, we can just look at the moon and the sculpture. built that the 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 fan slash band art like combined art project where they painted these pieces of wood and then the fans passed them over to this this building and they burned them down but the hood is just um one of those instances where fish is able to capture everything you're seeing (laughs) and just like spit it back to you in musical form well, off mic, you said that you wish you could go back as your 43-year-old self to that spot and because you may have appreciated it even more. Do you remember what you were feeling at the time? At the time, I was probably just kind of blissed out. But I think the reason I said I want to go back to it is because I think I get fish more now than I did then. Because like, I, I didn't used to dance at shows. Like, I've, I sort of was self-conscious and... I was moved by the music, but not enough to like start grooving. So I did kind of the, the lame, like, like fake hippie dance 
just to get along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was so self-conscious as like a, a younger person. Um, and now I just don't give a shit. Like now it's like I put on sunglasses and like, that's all I'm doing. But uh, I think, I think because I like appreciate fish so much more now, I would like to go back in this form to really appreciate that fully. I didn't, I don't think I got the whole thing back then. Yeah. Well, we never do. No, right. No, we always, no. Want, we always want to go back, which is why we keep coming back. I know. Right. Uh, I wrote in my notes that at eight and a half minutes, that this is the best hood. And I don't know if that's really true, even subjectively from my opinion, but it feels like that when you're listening, that each band member is playing so gently, but each one perfectly complements the other three. The soundboard exactly. recording that's available definitely helps. And then it turns by the end into a more straightforward rock progression with Trey leading the way, but he's just barely leading. 97 yeah. is widely known as you know, the, the democratic jamming style, right? Where they're all contributing to this big funk groove. But yeah. this hood, and I think the went as a whole, was that idea of everyone contributing to the larger tapestry, but more in a straightforward rock sense, as opposed to funk that would develop over the fall. I was listening to a, sh a friend of mine put on a show, a random show. And he's like, tell me the year. Mm -hmm. And I picked 90, I picked fall 97 because it was so spare and so funky. And so like everyone was so connected. What you said about, you know, the, how the band was playing so delicately and yet like all just at the right level with each other. I mean, that, that's a perfect example of the, the idea that it's, it's like, four elements coming together to create a new substance or compound. Speaking of substances and compounds, I described Trey's tone as liquid gold toward the yeah, end of yeah. it. It's so perfect. It it's so syrupy. <laughs> <laughs> it is syrupy. Yeah, it is. It's like the, yeah, I remember hearing when I heard you enjoy myself, I'm like, can a guitar play a note that long? Like the first time I heard it, the, my my big question was like, how did how did they get the guitar to do that for so long? <laughs> I think Trey spent a lot of time trying to copy Carlos Santana until yep. he finally made it his own, his ability to hit a sustain that just seems to never end. Right. 
you know, two tube screamers on top of each other and, and a, a guitar that's like, like I've, I've heard this, this thing about how the guitar is so it's like a Bronco or, you know, when, when you pick <laughs> it up, you have to mute the strings or Trey's guitar. It's like, it's, it's so hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the sound coming out of it is so turned up so high that you just have to like mute it. And then we'll move on to Gaiute, which was played about halfway through set three. I wrote that it was a standard, well-played, straightforward version because it was recently, probably at the time, either recently recorded or right about to be recorded for Story of the Ghost, even though it had already been around for three years. So this is definitely well-rehearsed. Did you pick this just because of your uh, your affinity for it, as you described earlier? Well, yes, and I remember when I when I heard Gaiuti start, I flipped out. I just, I was so excited because I'd been, I'd heard it actually once before in 95 or 96 sometime I I'd seen it, but I hadn't known, known it then. So to hear it after having been obsessed with it for so long, I turned completely like little fanboy and <laughs> um, screamed my head off. And I ran from where I was standing to one of the speaker towers and stood as close to the speaker tower as I could to hear the song. Ah, oh, tweaker and by the speaker. A tweaker by the speaker. I wasn't, you know, in those days, I didn't smoke a lot of weed or anything. I was just like super excited. Yeah. And yeah. I, uh, I hurt my hearing. There was a note where it was too loud and I felt my inner ear kind of like bend and I, I felt dizzy and disoriented for wow. a second. And that to me is like a perfect symbol of where I was. Yeah. Like, I was just about to tip over. And if I got any closer to the proverbial speaker, like, you know, I would too much. It was too much. And I, you know, I definitely damaged my hearing trying to get closer to that song. And then we fast forward many years. Can you give me the date exactly? Because I think I've spent a lot oh, of time t- trying to figure it out. <laughs> it's 12, 28, 19. Right. That's what I have. All right. Yeah. So we fast forward to December 28th, 2019 at MSG. And this is the show that you said kind of made your comeback in terms of having everything together, feeling confident within yourself again. Yeah. I had, I had, well, I'd moved back to California. My first show was going to be curveball, but we all know what happened there. Yep. But the, but the, the new year's run of 2019 I feel like I'd finally really become, I'd accepted the fact that I was like a fan again, like a full on, like diehard. And I could close my eyes and dance and not worry about it. I had 50,000 steps on my, on my uh, (laughs) iPhone health app after that. What does that feel like though? When you say that you kind of knew that you were a fan again? Well, I knew. How does it feel different from previous shows? Because because when I was there, I could really let go of what was going on in my life because I'd fixed my life, kind of. You know, I'd I'd gone through all of this repair work, um, and when I got, uh, I started going to shows again. I was immediately, you know, so excited to be doing that. I guess I was a fan. I mean, I was a fan before. I was a fan when I was using. I'm always going to be a fan. I've only seen one show since because that those were some of the last right, fish shows. Right. Unless you were at uh, Mexico, that was right, those were the last no. ones you could see. I think it has to do with self-consciousness and how self-conscious I feel because of how much self-doubt I have. Like when I go to a show and, and dance and I'm self-conscious, that means that something's awry in my life and that something is is broken and needs fixing. And then I'm not 
loving myself. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I, um, if I show up and I don't think about the people around me, except to be like, <laughs> to have fun with them. Um, and I just able to let go and, and let the music sort of absorb the music. Um, that's, that's a sign that things are good. And that's a sign that like my life is good. And, and fish, uh, can tap into that for some reason. I don't know why, but they do. And the songs that you chose to go over from this show, December 28th, 2019 are 20 years later, everything's right. And say it to me, Santos, which I thought it was pretty notable that this, the, the one show that is the most recent of the three that you picked includes all songs from the 3.0 era. Yeah, I guess that, yeah. I mean, they're they're all they're all sort of shiny and new you know but it's like it's it's interesting that you didn't pick for example <laughs> reba you know even if they played a really good version i don't have the set list of the show in front of me but yeah. even if they played a really good version of reba or they played an incredible tweezer you know that it's it's just symbolic to me right you well, your I've... story that it's you said you feel born again over the last couple of years and that right. fish is as well it's in their music as well as your soul yeah Everything's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk <laughs> about it. The first one you picked was 20 years later. It was played toward the end of set one after Dog Faced Boy. Yeah. So how are you feeling at that point? Do you remember? Um, yeah. So I when I had amazing seats. I was sitting um, just at the edge of the, the first balcony, um, halfway down the garden. So I could see all the whole crowd and just unobstructed view to the stage, unobstructed like lighting view, all that stuff. And um I, uh, I made a new friend sitting next to me. We just talked it up before the show started and then started dancing and hung out all night. I turned to her when 20 years later started and I was like, this song is ferocious. It like, is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. Um, it was fun to see that show with someone I didn't know, but was getting to know because mm-hmm. it was cool to see her reaction to, to the songs they were choosing, the, you know, the jams, how she felt about the jams. It was cool to compare notes um, on the fly with like a brand new human and who is still my, my good friend. Again, this is the attendance bias thing. Like it's not, it's not a, a, a remarkable performance of that song, but I remember it feeling remarkable at the time. Well, I remember I was there when it debuted at Jones beach in 2009 and I never heard it before. Right. It was before anyone had heard it really, except yeah. for the members of the band and probably Chris Carota. I remember thinking this, the lyrics of this song, they really sound like someone who's gone through some shit. Yeah. As opposed to a lot of earlier fish lyric, fish lyrics, but also recent fish lyrics, right. Which are more about optimism and looking ahead and lifting your soul and your spirit. Those songs in 2009, kill devil falls 20 years later, they're more about still being very close to a time in your life where things were not going wrong. You knew it but you couldn't get away from it. Yeah. Lyrically it's lyrically it's great. And actually that you're saying this now, it's the first time I've thought of the lyrics to 20 years later <laughs> in, in regards to this podcast, I'm like, Oh wait, he's totally, he's totally right about that. It's um, it's that subliminal, you know, I chose it for a reason clearly. Sure. And then the next one, everything's right, which opened the second set. And this is always a nice way to open a set. This song hasn't quite sunk in for me. It's a little too repetitive for my taste. But starting in 2019, they started taking it for some rides. 
Yes. Including this version. You could tell that Trey is giving the vocals his all at about three minutes. Uh, there's a nice jam percolating about five and a half. Fishman starts to play with the cowbell that I think spreads to the rest of the band. And then around eight minutes and 45 seconds, everything changes with big power chords from Trey and it settles back down before becoming kind of direction and aimless toward the very end. And the bass is sounding unlike anything I've ever heard Mike play, but everything's right. It, it, it has a little bit of what, what fish is a little bit of everything that they are in the very current era. And, and that jam goes a lot of different places. Um, I've, I've been listening to it quite a bit over the last few weeks um, since we started talking. And mm-hmm. um, every time I listen, I discover something new in that performance. question that might be a little personal but no, i have fine. friends i have friends who are in recovery yeah. and they all love everything's right and set your soul free they all I, do yeah yeah is, is it something i'm asking you as a person who has gone through this and i know when people say you know like i'm a former addict the language doesn't really go like that yeah. you know it's a different understanding psychologically and physically now that yeah. you know you are in recovery Right. And so is is there something in these more recent songs that connects that, to a person who's been through an experience like yours? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I also think it's a good message for I mean, I'm a, I'm an optimist. I at my core I'm completely optimistic about what's hap- what's going to happen. I think it's a good message for everyone. The the things that happen to people with regard to substances are an extension of what happened uh in regard to depression or anxiety or whatever led them there which is an extension of sadness. And we all like feel those things. It's like a a spectrum, you know, we're all a little bit this and a little bit that. And then some people get into trouble because they become too much of one thing and have to pull it back. So like everybody's balancing at all times. And I think the message that every, you know, just, just hang on, man, like, like take care of yourself, be positive, hang on because change is just around the corner uh, that's that's a nice message to be reminded of. I, I think of the of the 3.0 kind of now people refer to it this way. I, I try not to, but the the sort of the dad rock tray lyrics. <laughs> that's my that's my favorite one. That's the one where I really don't mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the music is reflective of the spirit of the words, like like that sort of soaring um, on the album cut which is great too, because they really jam it out on the album. And I just love that, that first guitar line, like after the words, um, it's soaring. It's kind of a little Floyd, like it's a little dead, like, and it's very positive and hopeful. 
And that's sort of my favorite part about fish. So Percy, John Purcell, thanks so much for coming on to Attendance Bias and of course, sharing your thoughts on music and your bio and your history. But I think I really want to say genuinely, most of all, thank you for sharing your story and your experience, which I have a feeling a lot of fish fans have gone through and maybe haven't come out on the other end yet, or unfortunately in some cases, maybe at all. But I think you did a really excellent job of connecting and tying together like we started this whole conversation where fish can act as a bookmark or mile markers for where you on it, where you are in any given point in your life compared to wherever they are in their career. It's really yeah. inspiring. It's really fun to talk about too. Well, um, you're, you're very welcome. And thank you so much for, for being willing to, to indulge this. I, I know people are in all different places and I hope that anyone listening who's struggling will just remember that, that change is, is always happening, whether you feel it's happening or not. And any step you take towards, towards the light is, is a step towards the light and you can't erase that. And that's it for today's interview with John Purcell, Percy, on today's episode of Attendance Bias. Naturally, we always have our fact check, but since today we were bouncing around between three different shows over the course of 25 years with different tracks from each one, there's bound to be some corrections and some trivia. So let's dive into today's Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. When talking about growing up, Percy mentioned seeing fish on the marquee at different venues in Somerville, Massachusetts, but he doesn't remember exactly where that was or when that was. According to Fish.net, the main venue that Fish played was at the Somerville Theater, which is still an active theater with a seating capacity of 900. Fish's first gig there was on September 20th, 1990, and their last gig at the venue was on November 21st, 1991. It should be noted that the band also played a gig in Somerville at a bar and restaurant called Johnny D's on April 19th, 1989. Johnny D's is no longer in operation, and the set list from the band's gig there is incomplete with no recordings available. Percy's first concert was Primus with the Melvins at the Orpheum Theater in Boston. That was indeed on the Pork Soda Tour, like I guessed, and it was on October 29th, 1993. There was a little bit of confusion about the track listing on the cassette version of Junta. According to Discogs.com, the 1989 version of Junta, released by the band, was a cassette single, or a single cassette, with 11 tracks, including Fluff's Travels, as its own separate track. The 1990 re-release by Fish did not name Fluff's Travels as a separate track. Neither version included Union Federal. When talking about some of Fish's darker jams, Percy names the Hampton Golden Age. Although the band has played Golden Age at the Hampton Coliseum more than once, I believe he's referring to the version played on October 19th, 2018, which lasts over 23 minutes and is described by Fish.net as, quote, aggressively experimental. Our discussion of the famous New Year's hot dog gag led to a side conversation about the hot dog's appearance at Big Cypress during the meat stick. Percy asks when the meat stick debuted. The answer is June 25th, 1997 at, and please forgive my pronunciation, which is bound to be way off. It was debuted at La Oranef in Lille, France. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Percy, John Purcell, for joining me today. 
I have to thank Fish.net for everything they do and their extensive help on today's fact check, and Fish.in, fishing for all of the recordings used on today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show. Leave a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. Call, text, spread the word about Attendance Bias. Come find me on social media, specifically on Twitter and on Instagram. Reach out and I'll send you a free sticker. Most of all, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.